0: The biggest moment in the history of USC football may not include a game-winning touchdown or even a championship trophy. In fact, it was during a very nondescript game in 2017 against Western Michigan. What made for such an incredible moment, it was the first time that Jake Olson would take the field. You see, when Jake was nine years old, cancer forced the removal of his left eye and he retained very limited sight in his right eye. Now Jake always loved football and his favorite team, as you could imagine, was USC. Well Pete Carroll heard a little bit about Jake's story and the team got connected uh, with Jake and they invited him into their program. He would attend practices and games and became a, a real inspiration to the football team. But then for Jake, the cancer would return. After overcoming cancer eight times, the ninth would prove too much, and Jake would undergo surgery to remove his right eye as well. But Jake's courage and optimism in the face of blindness has always been extraordinary. He would go on to play on his middle school and his high school football team. Upon graduation from high school with honors, he earned a scholarship to his favorite school. To USC, where he would try out and make the football team that had supported him so many years earlier. Then his day finally came to get into the game. Why don't you take a look? pretty remarkable. A darkness that couldn't steal life, that couldn't steal joy. Well, listen to the why from Jake's own words. At a young age, he says, I learned that life would bring adversity and challenges. The biggest reason why I've overcome and still have a positive attitude is because I have a strong faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Doesn't that make you smile? Some feel-good stories, especially in the Christmas season, to bring happiness and joy. It's kind of these moments that restore your faith in uh, humanity that help you see that life's actually bigger than football. Dare I say that in a college town? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we've lit our third candle of Advent this morning, and it is the candle of joy. It's the candle that's often referred to as the shepherd's candle, Highlighting the joy that the shepherds received uh, when they heard the good news about the birth of a Savior, Jesus Christ. Here they are out in the fields in the middle of a dark night. And then all of a sudden the skies light up and the angels proclaim, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people I suspect we all need to hear that proclamation today. For many of you, like the shepherds, just going about your daily business, doing life, so to speak, with very little thought of things of eternity. And you need to be interrupted out of your routine to hear this good news of great joy. Others of you may be experiencing the darkness of that night, but in a different way. For you, the darkness isn't physical but you're experiencing a darkness that's enveloped you, a a dark night of the soul, if you will, a weariness, a a heaviness, and maybe that's come from a recent diagnosis or a recent loss or maybe even a broken relationship. Darkness has overcome you, and this morning you need to hear good news of great joy, well, does that leave you asking, well, then what is this good news of, of great joy? Uh, because if you're not careful, I would argue it's pretty easy to miss. I mean, after all, it was thousands of years ago and it was just another baby born in a nobody town to two insignificant, seemingly insignificant parents. But clearly the angel knew then what the world knows now, that this seeming irrelevant birth was the revelation of something earth-shattering. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. The Lion of Judah was ready to roar, if even at first he sounded more like a baby crying. Remember that hundreds of years before this moment would take place, many godly people from Moses all the way through uh, to Malachi would prophesy about this coming uh, Messiah, this king that would deliver uh, the people of Israel. In fact, the prophets revealed so many details about this coming uh, Messiah that it's difficult to believe that back then those that were around him could miss it. How could you not see? How could you not recognize who he was? But it's still like that today, isn't it? Despite so much evidence, many refuse to acknowledge that Jesus is the only true Savior and Messiah. And so there's these prophecies that from this insignificant village of Bethlehem would come this great and mighty one who would rule over Israel the prophecies that these wise men, these kings, would come from foreign lands in order to present him with gifts. There were prophecies that the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham and of David and come from the tribe of Judah. And all it takes is one quick look through the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1 to see all of these prophecies are fulfilled It should be as obvious to anyone as it was to the shepherds that this little baby lying in the manger was the chosen son of God. Many throughout history, from the original disciples to modern-day martyrs, have suffered and died because they truly believed that Jesus is the good news of great joy. If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Peter's first letter 1st Peter chapter 1 we're going to look at just a few verses this morning and if you're willing and able I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word 1st Peter chapter 1 we'll start in verse 8 though you have not seen him meaning Jesus you love him though you do not see him you believe in him and rejoice with joy That is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the very salvation of your souls. Heavenly Father, this morning we need this great proclamation of great joy to our souls because we're a forgetful people. It's so easy to just kind of bypass this good news of great joy even in our daily lives. And so, Heavenly Father, through the power of your Spirit, would you speak to our very hearts this morning a message that you have for us and that through your Word, every time we come, God, we're not merely seeking information. We're seeking transformation that we would be more fully made alive in Jesus. In whose name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. I think it's helpful to remember that Peter's audience that he was writing to were actually persecuted Christians. These were people that had been driven from their homes and from their cities, from their communities, many separated from their families. Their rights had been taken, their property, their possessions had been taken. In all reality, their futures had been taken from them. But these persecuted Christians held on to something that could never be taken, and that was their joy. How do you hold on to joy when everything you know and love has been taken away from you? I think we're all pretty aware that there's a difference between happiness and joy, although most of us willingly substitute the former for the latter in our daily lives. We kind of dash from one thing to the next, hoping this next pleasure will will give us the emotional high that we mistakenly call joy. But see, phony joy makes you smile for a moment, but leaves you empty, and it leaves you searching again before very long. Do you find yourself entertaining yourself too much, hoping that the numbing joy of technology will help you cope? with the real world that you live in? Do you spend more money than you should, chasing the temporary high that purchasing and and possessions brings to you? Do you taste joy through your stomach, craving the short shelf life of of the mental or the physical buzz that that food or, or drink may bring to you? Maybe you work too much, hoping that achievement in your career will somehow make you feel good about yourself and your life. But I ask, have any of these things ever truly satisfied you? Can you admit this morning with me that they have failed to bring the true joy that many of them promise? Maybe a temporary happiness, but no real deep and lasting joy. Listen, real joy is more than a temporary spike in your emotions. In fact, you could argue that real joy is fundamentally more than an emotion. Let me offer you this definition this morning. Joy is an inner peace and a rest rooted in Jesus that results in a life of thankfulness and expectancy. See, real joy is not a feeling. It's a lifestyle And it's not a result of the things that are happening around me, but it's a sturdy rest and peace that I bring to the things that are happening around me. See, it fundamentally changes the way that I think about and interact with things that happen in my life on a daily basis, and that's all because of Jesus. Well, that leads to our first truth this morning, and it's this. Joy can be secure in all circumstances. See, what, what this remarkable source of joy for these persecuted Christians was Jesus. That's what verse 8 showed us. Even though they had never physically seen Jesus, they still loved Him. And they had faith in Him. And, and since no one could take their Jesus, no one could take their joy. Have you suffered loss? What are some of the things that have been taken from you? Maybe your health your home? Have you buried a dream? Maybe buried a marriage? Lost a friend? As you look at these losses in your life, do you also find that your joy was lost there as well? If that's true for you, chances are you, you substituted a joy that is courageously grounded in Christ for a happiness that's contingent on circumstances. See, contingent happiness says this, well, I'll be happy when, or I'll be happy if, fill in the blank. It's a happiness that depends on the right circumstances. And since we can't control every circumstance in our lives, well, then we're obviously set up for continued disappointment. Listen, contingent happiness turns us into wounded people of the world However, courageous joy molds us into resilient people of God. Do you see the difference? Courageous joy sets at uh, at the very hope of your heart, Jesus, a foundation that cannot be shaken or, or moved. And since no one can take your Jesus, no one can take your joy. Just recently, and even though somewhat expected, I had to walk through a diagnosis with one of my boys. And it's a challenge to say the least, and it's something that he'll have to navigate kind of through the rest of his journey. And about two weeks ago, I stood in a hospital room of a family that I love dearly and stood with them and had to listen to a very grim diagnosis when it comes to health. And I listened, and I prayed, and honestly, I walked out of there absolutely overwhelmed for their family and for what lies ahead. And then I think about a family at my boy's school that just lost their eight-year-old to battling childhood cancer. He fought a valiant fight against a, a horrific disease, but then this family would lay their child to rest down in the earth. Can death take your joy? It shouldn't, because Jesus is greater than death. Can a diagnosis take your joy? Well, it shouldn't, because Jesus is greater than any disease. Can sickness take your joy? No, because God has promised, whether on this side of the grave or the other, to heal you. Can betrayal take your joy? Even if others leave you, what does Jesus say? I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. These and any other difficult circumstances of your life should not take your joy because they cannot take your Jesus. Certainly we know, as John reminds us, in this world you will have tribulation, right? Right? He says, in this world, you're going to have trouble. There will be hurt. There will be struggle. There will be difficult circumstances. But what promise is attached to that same verse? Jesus says, but take heart. Because I've overcome these and all things. I've overcome the world. But remember a promise that took place earlier in that same chapter? You will be sorrowful, John writes in verse twenty but your sorrow will turn to joy. All it takes is a quick reading through the book of Acts to see the early church, these early Christ followers, were, they weren't known for their grand buildings. They weren't known for their amazing programs that they had. What were they known for? They were known for amazing and lasting and deep joy in the midst of great Persecution when everything wasn 't going well for the early church, the church had joy acts five forty one then they left the presence of the council and catch this, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Look at what the, what Athenian philosopher Aristides wrote to the emperor Hadrian, this is what he said about the early church. Every morning and on all hours of account, the goodness of God toward them, they render praise. They laud over him, over their food and over their drink, they render him thanks. And if any righteous person of their number passes away from this world, they rejoice and give thanks to God. And they follow his body as though he were moving from one place to another. And when a child is born to them, they praise God. And if it chances to die in its infancy, they praise God mightily. As for one who has passed through the world without sins, The early church, these early Christ followers were joyful Christ followers In fact, you may argue that there's no need to put the adjective joyful in front of Christ's follower because there really should be no other kind. And that was the testimony of the church to the world, and that should be our testimony, this unwavering joy that doesn't melt in the face of difficult circumstances. Because we are rooted, we are grounded in Jesus. And even if the world would strip everything away from us, they cannot, the world cannot take our Jesus. The second thing we see this morning is that joy can be shared because Jesus has come. When Jesus was born, it broke nearly a 400-year silence, which God's people had not heard from Him. They knew the prophecies that we talked about earlier, They still were holding on to their faith, believing these things would come to pass. They'd been waiting for this promised Messiah who would deliver them from their enemies. And then all of a sudden the skies break open. And the announcement is made. All of a sudden these shepherds receive the good news. And so we learn from the shepherds that joy must be shared. They're really the first evangelists, if you will. They hear good news, good news that have been brought to them, and they cannot keep it to themselves. They've got to go from there, from the fields, proclaiming, Jesus has come, the long-awaited Messiah, he is here. We've got to share this joy. We learn something from the shepherds, that joy should so overflow our lives that we can't help but share it. It just kind of oozes out in all that we say and all that we do. Tim was, well, let me back up a second. Uh, Christ followers have discovered this secret when it comes to joy, that you gain more joy by sharing joy. Haven't you discovered that to be true? You you seek to be a blessing to others, to share others the hope, uh, or to give uh, them hope, and all of a sudden you feel like, I think I'm a little bit more on the receiving end here. (laughs) That's been my experience on every mission trip I've been in, no matter what country or community I've been in. And then it's kind of contagious, right? The more you share joy, the more you actually want to share joy. I love how Bob Goff says it. When joy is a habit, loving people is a reflex. You see the two go hand in hand, don't they? When you've been given such great joy, loving people comes naturally. It's a natural reflex in our spiritual lives. You've received the joy that Jesus has come, and it's too good to contain for others. So we just give it away. Tim was dealt a pretty bad hand when it came to his early life. His parents divorced when he was seven years old. His mother, an African American nursing assistant, worked 16 hour days, but she couldn't lift her family out of poverty. As a teenager, while many of his friends were discovering uh, video games and girls, Tim served popcorn at the local movie theater. During his break, he would hurry across the street to a, a local fast food restaurant and get fries and water. John Moniz owned that fast food restaurant. It was a Chick-fil-A, and he noticed this repeat customer would keep coming in, and he asked him, well, why aren't you buying more food? And Tim told John, well, I just can't afford it. John Moniz made a decision to get to know Tim. One evening, he took with him a bag of sandwiches across the street. The two struck up a conversation that would lead to a friendship that would lead to a mentorship. John learned that Tim was failing several classes at school, so he shared with him life lessons about discipline and responsibility, about biblical business principles he was applying to uh, his work. Probably most importantly, John taught this young friend about Jesus. Well, Tim began eating up all the sandwiches he would bring and all the wisdom that he would share. This 17-year-old began to feel life coming together for him, and then tragedy struck. John, at age 37, died suddenly. Tim was left standing at the graveside of his friend and at a crossroads. Much to his credit, he chose to put the life lessons that John had taught him to good use. As a young teenager, Tim would write a purpose statement for his life, and it was this, to have a positive effect on one billion people. That's a pretty ambitious goal. Yet he appears to be well on his way to reaching it because Tim Scott was sworn into the U.S. Senate in 2013, the first African-American senator from the South since the Reconstruction. Then earlier this year, Tim Scott declared his intention to run for president of the United States, and it all started with a sandwich and a man who was willing to walk across the street to offer encouragement and to share joy. I just wonder if maybe you and I could do something similar. We've got the good news, church. It's not as complicated when it comes to sharing it as we make it out to be. You already have it in you, don't you? You already know the good news. Would you think and pray about ways that you could share that joy of Jesus with others, maybe even in this Advent season? The third thing we see this morning is that joy can be trusted because Jesus will return. See, in our text this morning, Peter's been framing out for us that that joy should really be the normative experience for a believer. And this joy is deep, and it's beautiful, and it should serve as a very bedrock for your soul that should a bad day or a disappointment or a difficulty in a relationship or unexpected traffic or a challenging boss, even a rebellious child, that joy should not falter and in fact, because of that deep joy that wells up uh, within you, you remember that Jesus has come. It, it overflows that we want to serve others and tell others this good news of the gospel. And then Peter reminds us in verse 9 of, of this tension between the already and the not yet that we are obtaining the outcome of our faith, the very salvation of Our souls. He's saying this. You have joy when you realize the thing that you long for and need most in your life. Jesus. Well, he's come. He's here. He's available. You can have him. But also, he's coming again. See, we live in between advents. See, in his first advent, Christ came in the weakness of infancy to become the suffering servant of those who were hopelessly lost. But in his second advent, he'll come as the reigning and ruling King of kings and Lord of lords. In his first advent, a star marked his arrival. But in his second advent, the heavens will open up like a scroll And the trumpet will sound, the stars will fall out of the sky, and he himself will be the light of the world. The first time he came, the wise men brought him gifts. But the next time that he comes, he will be the one bringing the gifts and the rewards for those who have faithfully loved him and followed him. The first time he came, there was no room for him But the next time he comes, the whole world will not be able to contain him and his glory. Listen, joy can be trusted because Jesus will return. Does that thought not fill your heart with joy this morning? Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the Advent season is a season of waiting, but our whole life is an Advent season. That is a season of waiting for the last Advent for the time where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. See, real joy is rooted in a belief and trust that what Jesus has spoken is true and reliable. It's accurate. You can trust His Word. God's working is unstoppable. His plans are always wise and gracious and good. And even though we will stumble on this journey and we'll often be surrounded by darkness, we have seen the light. The light will never be extinguished. We can see it even if it's faint at times, and that light that we see, we will see coming again. So, set your heart this morning on Paul's words in 2 Corinthians, where he writes, so we do not lose heart. That is our hope. Jesus has come. And no matter how difficult or dark it is, Jesus is coming again. Harrison Okine found himself in utter darkness. He was working as a cook on the crew of the tugboat Jaskon 4. And in May 20 of 2013, his day started out normally, just like every day. He got up and he said his prayers. He was headed to the galley when a rogue wave hit the tugboat. The lights would go out, everything would go dark, and the boat began to fill with water. Well, the boat actually capsized, and within minutes, he felt the boat touch the bottom of the seabed. He had no idea, but he was now 100 feet below the surface of the water. All the rest of the crew tried to frantically scramble toward the exits. But Okine didn't panic. He actually swam more towards the interior of the boat. A rush of water would uh, propel behind him and, and close a bathroom door where he would find himself in the boat upside down. He kept his head into a small pocket of air that was trapped. He would keep his composure and manage to think about ways that he may be able to survive. He was able to free himself into an adjoining room that had more space. But there he was in total darkness and silence. He found himself in this strange moment, a place beyond all means of human survival. He settled his mind and resolved to just stay put. The water level was rising, but Okine clung to his faith, praying and singing church songs. Father, we cannot see you, but we see your wonders, he would sing. His joy in Jesus sustained him. The next sounds that would interrupt the darkness were that of a diver coming to retrieve the bodies. Video from the camera on the diver's helmet would show the moment that the diver saw a pale palm floating in the water before him. The diver relayed to base that he had found another body, and then Okine's hand grabs his. Okine had no awareness, but he had been trapped in that boat on the ocean floor for three days. After a time of decompression and moving him back to the surface, every one of his vitals, all of his signs proved perfectly normal. Akine was later asked to reflect on his experience, and he said this, The way I think, the way I see life, and yes, in speaking about the accident, improved my life, actually. I know there is a God and that there is a God beside me. I know He has a great purpose for me. Isn't it remarkable what brought Him hope in the middle of darkness was joy, joyful singing about Jesus. I'm not sure being trapped in the boat on the floor of the ocean, he even thought rescue was possible. But I think he already knew with the joy in his soul that he had been rescued, that his life was found in Jesus. Listen to the words of Kevin DeYoung, "'Christmas will never be for us good news of great joy until it is good news every day of the year.'" The mystery of the Incarnation is that the Eternal One was born, that the Creator came into the world through one of His creatures, that the Ancient of Days walked among us in the fullness of time. This is what we know and believe every day, not just in this season of Advent. And whether you've heard the story of Christmas many times or you're hearing it for the first time, I don't want you to miss this. God isn't revealing himself to you just so that you can believe that he exists. He's revealing himself to you so that you can find your highest meaning and joy in a personal relationship with him. He's come so that you can be found. He's come so that you can be connected to your Creator God. He's come that you can know Him, and in knowing Him, have joy, a deep joy that will sustain you no matter what life brings your way. There is a great joy available to you this morning, and His name is Jesus.